0: Evening, where we're going to be spending our time, and I did say Leviticus, so (laughs) Leviticus chapter 23. The heart behind this service is really twofold. Uh, the one is the prophecy element, to really look at what God has to say about his soon return. And as time continues on, we know one thing's for certain, that we're getting closer to the return of Jesus Christ. And Jesus told us to live our lives in expectation that he's coming, to be watching, to be ready for his coming. So this service is geared towards looking to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And also, I find that New Year's Eve is a time of reflection. It's a time to look back at throughout this last year. We're going to end the service with communion tonight to look at how God has shown himself faithful in your life, but also to look forward to this year, 2014, and say, God, I desire that you would work in my life. I want to grow in the knowledge of you. I don't know about you, but it seems like a year is about a month now. You know, it's like a whole year goes by and it feels about a month's uh, period of time. Time is just racing before we know it. We're going to be in the presence of God this prophecy service is going to be a little bit different than I've done in years past normally I look at current events and how those current events are a sign of the second coming of Jesus Christ like earthquakes Wars Matthew chapter 24 but tonight we're going to look at the feasts the seven feasts that were given to the nation of Israel and how these feasts point to Jesus Christ the first four feasts were fulfilled in his first coming and then the last three feasts will be fulfilled in his His last coming. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless our time in His Word. Father, we come to you tonight as a church family and we want to say thank you for your faithfulness to us. We remember times of worship and times of studying Your Word, times of serving together, Project Nehemiah reaching out into our community, missions trips, times of fellowship in the cafe and in homes. Lord, studying Your Word together, going through the book of Joshua. God, you're so faithful, and we do desire to be that generation that enters into all that you have for us. Jesus, we worship you. We thank you that you are the Passover lamb, that you're the bread of life, that you're the first fruits of the resurrection, that you're our coming Savior. Thank you that you're gracious towards us. You never leave us or forsake us, that you're always willing to forgive us of our sins. Thank you that we've been freed from the power of sin. We give our hearts to you. We love you. We are so thankful to be your sons and your daughters, to be the bride of Christ. We need your power. We need you to touch us. We, We need you to put in us an urgency of your coming. We need your help to not be transformed, to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed into your image. God, we just invite you to really take your word and plant it into our hearts. We want our hearts to be that good soil that's gonna bring forth fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Prophecy makes a lot of people uneasy for some reason, and I think it's because of all of the abuses that's taken place with prophecy. And you should be on guard when it comes to prophecy. Prophecy is not a word where anything goes, it's something to be taken very seriously. In the Old Testament, if someone gave a prophecy in the name of the Lord and it didn't come true, they were to be killed, right? So it's not something to take flippantly, but it's very much a part of the Bible. There's 2500 prophecies in the Bible, 2000 of which roughly have been fulfilled perfectly. I mean, stop and think about that for just a moment. God's telling us something about himself when he foretells the future. When he says this is going to happen, and that's exactly what happens. It causes us to see his sovereignty. It causes us to see that he's in control. In Revelation, it says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Many of the prophecies, they focus in on the person of Jesus Christ. His first coming and his second coming. I have to bear with me. I got a little tickle in my throat tonight, so. So I'll try not to uh, hack through the service this evening. (coughs) I'm going to pop this in here as well. This is the most awkward thing that can happen. Actually, it's probably not (coughs) the most awkward thing (laughs) that could happen. So the studying of prophecy, it builds our faith. And tonight, I hope that your faith is built as you see the fulfillment of these prophecies. These seven feasts that we're going to look at were given to the children of Israel. The word feast in Hebrew, it means appointed times. These feasts were given to the nation of Israel to be studied and celebrated on a specific day, Each of these seven feasts, and they point to specific things throughout Scripture. In Colossians two, verse sixteen and seventeen, speaking about the feasts, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So we don't study these feasts to then be obligated by the law to fulfill them, that we have to celebrate them. But we study these feasts to see how they point to Jesus Christ. They're a shadow of Jesus Christ. You can celebrate them. You have the freedom to do that, but you don't have to celebrate these because we're inside of the new covenant. But you should understand them because each feast is fulfilled in Jesus. It's a shadow of the things to come. The substance is Jesus Christ. Without the substance, there would be no shadow, right? Without a person, without a building, without something of substance, there is no shadow. And it's the same thing with these feasts. Jesus is the substance, and these are the the shadow of those things. And it brings us to Christ. So let's begin. We've got some work to do tonight. So let's get into verse 1 of Leviticus 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Leviticus 23, verse 1 and 2. Please take note what stands out. These are the feasts of the Lord. They proclaim holy convocation. These are my feasts. So who do the feasts belong to? God. They're God's feasts, first and foremost, given to the children of Israel, but they belong to the Lord. And again, this word feast, it means appointed times. These are the appointed times of celebration. In verse 3, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It's the Sabbath of the Lord in all of your dwellings. And so this is kind of the overarching theme of these feasts is God says, I want you to rest one day a week on the seventh day, which is Saturday. It would be from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. God gave this to the children of Israel for their benefit, for them to rest from their customary work, to enjoy their relationship with the Lord, enjoy their family. We know from the New Testament that we're not held by the law to honor the Sabbath. So you don't have to stop all of your work Friday evening and until Saturday evening. It does tell us in the New Testament that some esteem every day alike. However, this is a principle that I think God has still given to us that you'll benefit from if you choose to rest. God rested on the seventh day, not because he needed rest, but for an example for us. This is something that God really taught me throughout 2013. I hope that I can continue in it. I tend to be somebody that goes a million miles an hour. It doesn't come easy for me to rest. And what I found through this year is I couldn't keep the pace up that I was doing something was going to come apart. God didn't design me to be able to do this. And I had to enter into the discipline of rest. And it's a discipline for me to rest. And so on Mondays, it's my my Sabbath. I, I try to unplug from what I do the rest of the week and plug into the Lord. The reason that it's a discipline is largely because of the technology. So much of our work comes to us through our email, doesn't it? And so it's a discipline for me to say, I'm not going to check email today. I'm going to unplug from those things so I can plug into the things of the Lord. This really doesn't have anything to do with prophecy, but if this is all you hear tonight and the Holy Spirit's touching you on this, try resting. And it is an expression of faith because even right now in your mind, you're going, I can't rest because everything would fall apart if I don't rest. You know what that is in all of us? It's pride. It's stinking pride. It's saying, I'm the one who makes everything happen. I make provision happen. I make things in my family happen. No, God's the one who makes things happen. And we get refreshed and we gain perspective by resting one day a week. This is what I'm learning is if you don't give your body rest, it will take it. You know what I'm saying? You can do it for seven years, you can maybe do it for 20 years or 30 years, but at some point your body's going to say, that's enough, I'm closing down now for six months until you get recharged and you get refreshed. These feasts really have a lot to do with rest, because not only is God saying rest one day a week, but throughout the year he's got seven times we're there to celebrate and rest. God's into parties, not New Year's Eve kind of parties that a lot of people are having tonight, getting drunk and stoned and all those kind of things. But God is into celebrating his goodness and resting, taking a break from our work and celebrating his goodness. And we find that in these feasts. So verse four, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Again, these feasts are not just happen chance, but these are the times that are picked And they're ordained by the Lord to be celebrated. Here's the first feast if you're taking notes. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So these would be the spring feasts. This is the first of the spring feasts. The Jews have their own calendar. It's not our calendar. And the first month for them is in the spring. And on the 14th day of the month is Passover. This would take them back to when they were delivered out of Egypt. The last plague that was given to Pharaoh was the oldest son would die. The exception was if you were to take the blood of the lamb, apply it to the door, the angel of death would pass over. Judgment would pass over. That's why it's called the Passover. This is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. Jesus got the disciples together in the upper room to celebrate what? Passover. The priests would be making the sacrifice of the lamb as Jesus Christ was crucified. At 9 a.m. on Passover, the priests would be binding the lamb to the altar. Jesus was bound to the cross at 9 a.m. At 12 p.m., we know from the gospels, there was supernatural darkness that went over Jerusalem because Jesus was dying upon the cross. Then at three in the afternoon, which is the ninth hour, this is the hour that the Passover lamb would be slain, Jesus Christ cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't die at just some random happen chance time, but he died during Passover. When he died, what happened to the veil in the temple? It was torn in two from top to bottom. God was saying something. He's saying, I'm doing this. You now have access into my presence. First feast fulfilled at the appointed time, the Passover is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The Father planned the funeral music for his son. During the Passover, as the lamb was being slain, Israel would be singing Psalms 113 to 118, the hallel. And Psalms 113 says this, "The stone that the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in his eyes. That's Jesus. He was rejected, but he came our cornerstone of salvation. This was the doing of the Father. And we go, wow, that's the song that was being sung while Jesus Christ was being crucified. This is the first feast. Now the second feast is verse six. On the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have holy convocation. Not gluten-free bread, unleavened bread. You shall not do customary, almost the same thing though, isn't it? They're both tasteless. (laughs) Not true, there is some good gluten-free bread. Not so much good gluten-free pizza though. It's hard to find that. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. During the second feast, right after Passover, this was to be celebrated every year. There was about 1,500 Passovers and feasts of unleavened bread leading up to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1,500. At the feast of unleavened bread, you'd have to go through your whole house and make sure you have no leaven, that you have no yeast. And of course, your bread would be unleavened bread. This has spiritual significance because leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin. It only takes a little bit of leaven to ruin the whole lump, to impact the whole lump. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that. Jesus warned us about the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the idea was go through your life and make sure there's no sin. What areas of compromise are there? Year after year they would do this. It was a time of purification. Well, Jesus was buried at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He is the only one who is truly without sin. His body is with no leavened. And celebrating this feast, they would take the matzah, which was their unleavened bread. And if you've seen matzah, it's striped. The bread of life, Jesus Christ, is striped as he was whipped for us. So they would take this matzah and they would wrap it up and you would hide it in the house and then you would go and you would find it and unwrap it. Jesus Christ is buried in the tomb. They went and found him Risen from the dead, the unleavened bread points to the purity of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was buried for us so that we could receive forgiveness of sin. A lot of times when we think of the gospel, we only think of the cross. Not to minimize the cross, but the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't miss the burial of Jesus Christ as well. It was the fulfillment of the feast of unleavened bread. And what I'm hoping that you're seeing as we go through this is a confidence that the last three feasts will be fulfilled as well. So now we're on the third feast. What are the first two? Passover and unleavened bread. The third feast is the feast of first fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the Lord. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priests shall wave it. Spring feast. Now you have your first harvest, your first fruits. What are you to do with your first fruits? You were to celebrate this feast. Bring it to the Lord, and then wave it before the Lord in worship. Offer it unto the Lord. Maybe you hear this term, give your first fruits to God, and you're like, I don't really know what that means. That means give your best to God. They were taking the very best of their crops, and they were offering it Unto the Lord. We don't want to give God our leftovers. We want to give to Him our first fruits. How does this point to Jesus Christ, His resurrection? The first fruits was celebrated on the first day of the week, which is Sunday for the Jews. When was Jesus risen from the dead? The first day of the week. You read in the Gospels, Mary Magdalene and the other women went to the tomb on the first day of the week, Sunday morning. And Mary was the first to see Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the first fruits. He is the very best. We find in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, it says, But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. The very implication of first fruits is there's going to be more fruit. There's going to be more to come. You're giving God the best, but there's more to come. And Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection because all of those who are in Christ will be risen just like Christ. Isn't that exciting? As Christ received a glorified body, we too will receive a glorified body that we're looking forward to. Yes and amen, right? Starts looking better every year, that glorified body. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. So he's fulfilled the Passover. He's fulfilled unleavened bread. He's fulfilled the feast of first fruits. The next is the feast of Pentecost, also known as the feast of weeks. It's verse 15. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So Pentecost was 50 days after the Feast of, of First Fruits. There's a lot of F's there. Feast of First Fruits. Say that time. Five, five times really fast. Okay, me neither. I'm not doing it either. This was a pilgrimage feast. This was a feast meaning that you had to come to Jerusalem And for many of you, this is starting to ring a bell because this is when the Holy Spirit was given to the church in power. We find in Acts 2, in chapter 3, you've got the believers praying in the upper room, but Jews that have come from all parts of the world, God pours out his spirit. The disciples begin to speak in tongues. The multitude that's gathered, here's the wonderful works of God in their own language. They ask the question, hey, you guys are drunk. What in the deal's happening? Peter's like, no, we're not drunk. He preaches the gospel. 3,000 people got saved. It was the birth of the church. At Pentecost, as you continue to read, I'll summarize it for you, is you were to take the grain and offer it to the Lord. The new grain was to be given to God. At Pentecost there became new grain, didn't there? There was the harvest of souls. But what I find fascinating about Pentecost is this, is that the priest would lift two loaves and offer it to God. And what's really interesting as you'll read there in your scriptures is that it was leavened bread this time. And why would these loaves have leavened bread in it? To me, I think it symbolizes sinful man. Jesus is the unleavened bread, isn't he? He's pure. But all of us, everyone who's ever born, we have sin inside of us. So the priest lifting up two loaves with leaven. But why two loaves? Because you've got Jews and Gentiles that are saved on the day of Pentecost, and you've got the birth of the church, don't you? And in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, it it speaks of God making two one and removing that barrier. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the war, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Do you think the following three feasts will be fulfilled? Now we have four feasts that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension that led to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ has fulfilled Pentecost. Absolutely. So, what are the next three feasts? Let's keep reading. The Feast of Trumpets, verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation, you shall do no customary work on it and you, shall, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now we go to the fall. The last three feasts are in the fall. The first of the last three is the feast of trumpets. They would blow the trumpets and this would symbolize to all of those that are laboring out in the field. They've labored all through the summer. Now it's come time for the harvest They're to leave the fields and to come in to worship. And the blowing of the trumpets is very significant throughout the scriptures. First, it's a ram's horn. It kills me as American Christians if we think of trumpets like brass instruments and that's the trumpet that, that we think of for the nation of Israel. They were ram's horns. They still blow them today. It's called the shofar. I think they have some in the bookstore you can go and, and look at and see when the, when the bookstore is open. But God said to blow the trumpets for two reasons. The first was to gather the people together for worship, for celebration, to let everybody know it's time to stop what you're doing and come and worship the Lord. Let's gather together. The other reason that the trumpet was blown was it's time to go to war. So gather together for worship and time for war. When we go to the New Testament, what could it be that the blowing of trumpets Represents that the harvest is done, that it's time to, to come together as God's people. You've guessed it. It's the rapture of the church. I read to you from First Thessalonians 4, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So God's saying, I want you to understand what happens to those who are dead in Christ. When you piece it all together, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We're at the forced feast, the feast of trumpets. When Jesus raptures the church, what's he going to use? He's going to use a trumpet. He's going to blow this trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, at this point, you might have about a thousand questions running through your head. I can only cover two. I'm going to cover two primary questions. And the first is, well, what is the rapture of the church? What does it mean to be caught up? When the rapture of the church happens, for all of those who are in Christ, you're not going to die. You're going to instantly be with the Lord. That's going to be incredible. That's what we all hope for to happen in our generations. That would be great be great if it happened tonight, wouldn't it? I would love for it to happen sometime when we're gathered together in a church service. I think it would be so funny if it was like the 11 o'clock and they bragged to the nine o'clock, or it was a Saturday night and they got to brag to the other two. And I'm blessed to be at all three of them. So, but whether it was personally or corporately, it'd be great to be together in worship. What's this about the dead in Christ and and them rising? Does this mean that those who have perished, that they're in some kind of soul sleep and they're not with the Lord? Absolutely not. Scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the moment that you die, your spirit, who is the essence of your person, goes home to be with the Lord. However, you don't receive your glorified body until this trumpet is blown. So when this trumpet's blown, up goes the church, and then here comes all of the bodies of those who have died in Christ. Now, I want to try to answer another question, is I get a lot, is cremation wrong? And then the next question is, well, if someone's cremated, can God resurrect their body? And cremation does the exact same thing that the natural process does in the ground, right? If you get buried in the ground, you're going to become food for worms. I know that's not very comforting. And cremation does the same thing. And it's not difficult for God to raise up somebody who's been cremated or who has been buried for, for more, you know, traditional means of, of being buried. So it's really up to you, however you, you'd like to be. That's not the in, important thing. The important thing is if you're in Christ, amen? And if you're in Christ, then Christ is going to bring you up with your resurrected body. So then do you have all of these spirits in God's presence that are waiting for a body, right? I don't think so because I think in heaven it's going to be much more like an eternal now, right? God gives an analogy that a thousand years to us is like a day to the Lord. That's not literal, but let's just say that it was. Maybe they're waiting up there for 30 seconds. For three minutes for their glorified body. I think much more it's going to be an eternal now that takes place. This is exciting, the rapture of the church, and God wants us living with expectation that it could come at any time. I want to be clear on this because you can't give a day or an hour for the rapture of the church. Jesus said that only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. So if anybody tries to tell you, they don't know. They're a false teacher. Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night, right? A thief doesn't announce his coming and say, I'm going I'm to rob you tonight. So the idea is you want to always be prepared for a thief. But even more so, you want to always be prepared for the rapture of the church, for the coming of Jesus Christ, and preparing our hearts for that. This is when Christ comes to receive his bride. If you read closely here in 1 Thessalonians, it doesn't say that Christ returns to the earth at this point. It says that the church goes up to be with him. And again, understanding Jewish culture is so important when it comes to this because when a couple got engaged, it would be called that they were betrothed. We see that with Mary and Joseph. They actually had a ketubah. It was a contract that they would sign and their parents would sign that it was a legal binding agreement between the two of them. But they couldn't get married until this husband-to-be had a house built for his future wife. I want to imply that with my three daughters, my three young daughters, you know. (laughs) I want to marry my daughter. Let's see the house, young man. Let's see the job. When you got the job and the house, then you can have my daughter, Right? So dad would oversee this process, the the dad of the groom. And when he thought the house was done and sufficient, he'd say, son, you can go get your bride. But the bride didn't know exactly when her husband was gonna come to marry her. That's torture for brides, don't you think? Have to have the hair just right for a two or three month period, you know? Maybe it's gonna be today and have the, the, the garment all ready to go. Those who are in the wedding had to be prepared as well, and that's what Jesus speaks to when he speaks of our garments, that our garments, we're, we're to be pure, we're to be ready, we're to be a bride that's waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. I think this is always a little bit convicting, because for most of us, we believe this somewhere back here, but for some reason up here, the scoffers have kind of got the best of us. We're going, well, that's great, in the rapture of the church, but I don't really think it's going to be in my lifetime and, and what if it's not in my lifetime? Am I going to have a let down hope and all those kind of things? And God would want to bring back to life this hope inside of our hearts. And I think a true hope of his imminent return in the rapture of Jesus Christ, it doesn't cause us to live foolishly. If that's your understanding of this, that's a wrong understanding. It causes us to live wisely in all areas of our lives. Who so are saying, I want to be fit for Jesus Christ's So this is the next feast. It's the next feast to be fulfilled. I think this is where we're at in in times events, where we're looking for the rapture of the church. What's the next feast? In Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 26, the day of atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, also the 10th day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on the same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people." You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls, and on the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So, what happens when the church is raptured? We see Jacob's trouble, the Bible calls it, the wrath of the Lamb, a seven-year tribulation period where God pours out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. The end of that seven-year period, Christ returns literally to this earth, to the Mount of Olives, where he rules and reigns for a thousand-year period. How does the Day of Atonement point to Jesus Christ? I believe the Day of Atonement will be fulfilled when Christ returns and Israel understands that Jesus Christ is their Messiah who atoned for their sins. The Day of Atonement was one day a year where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies make sacrifice for sin so that sin could be covered. It was a very solemn day, as we just read. In that sense, the Day of Atonement's already been fulfilled. Jesus Christ has already done that. But who largely doesn't accept the atonement of Jesus Christ? The nation of Israel. There's some Jews that do, but there's many Jews who don't, who don't believe in Christ, who are atheists that get offended when you mention that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who's atoned for their sins. But if you study scripture closely, you find that God's got a future for the nation of Israel. He promises a mass revival for the nation of Israel. Well, they will see and understand that Jesus is their atoning sacrifice. The Bible also tells us when this will happen. Revel- or excuse me, Zechariah 12, verse 10. You may want to write it down. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem... The spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his own soul, and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. When we go back and read Zechariah 12, that's where God says that Jesus is going to descend on the Mount of Olives. When he descends, he literally puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. Where did Jesus ascend into heaven? The Mount of Olives. So where he took off from, he lands back down. As the Mount of Olives is split by a great earthquake, living water comes out from that source. And it's then that the nation of Israel sees the Lamb of God. He still has the scars. He still has the wounds of the cross. They ask, where did you get these wounds? And Jesus says, in the house of my friends. That's when they realize that Christ is their atoning sacrifice. And for the nation of Israel, the day of atonement is fulfilled in their eyes. What a day to look forward to. So now we're up to six feasts. What's the last feast? The last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. But before we do this, I wanna just share a personal story uh, this year. We had a chance, it was a real blessing, a handful of us from the church to go to Israel See a few of you here tonight that were able to go. And, and our guide, his name was Etai, and you can be praying for him. I was thinking about him today. He's not a believer. He doesn't know Christ. He doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's a Jewish man, but he's not Orthodox Jew either, meaning that he doesn't follow the law, but he does believe in God, but he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And we had some good conversations with him and a good friendship and a friendly discussion We're saying how could you know the scriptures so well and he taught so thoroughly about Jesus. He didn't just share with us from the Old Testament but he also shared with us from the life of Christ in the New Testament. We're saying how do you know so much about Jesus but yet you still reject him and he really didn't have a good answer. It kind of, kind of stumped him, and as he thought about it, it really came down to the resurrection. He couldn't buy into or believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I would love to see him come to know Christ, and Lord willing, if we get to go to Israel again, we'll use him again, but that was a real personal experience where there is a blindness for many of the Jews in the nation of Israel, but there will be a day where they come to understand that Jesus is their, their Messiah. So the last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 33 of Leviticus 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And then the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Have, you, have we read that a few times tonight? God saying no customary work. He's got to make it a command. He's saying, you guys need to rest. If you add this all up, they got a lot of vacation time. You know what I'm saying? But in their rest time, it was a time where they were drawing near to the Lord. And on this feast, if you were to continue to read, they were to make booths, or they were to make tents for seven days, tabernacles, a dwelling place to remember how God was faithful to them as they journeyed through the wilderness, as they had to camp out through the wilderness. What a great way to teach your kids. Once a year, we're going to have a camping trip, and during this camping trip, we're going to talk about the cloud that came over the children of Israel in the desert to provide shade. We're going to talk about the pillar of fire. We're going to talk about the manna from heaven. They would experience those stories by having this camping trip but also this dwelling place and God tabernacling among his people was always God's intent. He's always wanted to dwell among us and us to dwell among him, which is mind-blowing, isn't it? Why would God want to dwell among us? We see with Adam and Eve that the fellowship that they had was unbroken. God would come and tabernacle with them in the cool of the day. However, sin broke that fellowship with God. John 1 verse 14 says, The word, which is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the Greek, it's tabernacled. He came and he tabernacled among us so that we could dwell with him for all of eternity, that we could tabernacle with God. The end of the Bible is summed up with this in Revelation 21. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will dwell with them and be their people. The tabernacle of God is with men. This last feast is fulfilled when Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years here on this earth. By the way, that's what we really long for. That's the only time we're gonna have world peace is when Christ comes. That's really what this world is is looking for. After that millennial reign, then forever with the Lord. The Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled when God's people dwell with him. I've just scratched the surface on these seven feasts. My hope for all of us, I know for me, is to study these feasts more, to understand them more in depth, to appreciate how Christ has fulfilled the first four feasts, the spring feasts, to look forward to how he'll fulfill the fall feasts, the last three feasts. I've got to give credit to a guy named Ray Bentley. He's done a lot of research on this and I benefited from him as I was putting together this study. But there's a lot of great resources as you study these feasts. I want to try to bring application tonight in our lives. Is, there's a clear application for us is enjoy the substance of Christ now. Enjoy the substance of Christ now. He is the Passover lamb. He's the unleavened bread. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He is given the spirit at Pentecost. Hear the sound of the trumpet calling us to worship now. Rejoice in the atonement of Christ. Tabernacle with Christ today, tonight, this evening. I don't know about you, but like Chance was sharing throughout the year, there's a lot of ups and downs not just throughout the year, but any given day, there's a lot of ups and downs. And I find myself, at the end of this year, looking forward to 2014, needing Jesus more than I've ever needed him before. As we sing tonight, God, I'm desperate for you. That, that's reality. God, I can't make it without you. And these feasts, they point to Jesus. For us to worship Jesus, to thank him that judgment has passed over us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The blood of the Lamb has been applied to the door of your heart and judgment's not upon you, it's not upon me. Jesus is our Passover Lamb. To really appreciate his purity. We say it so flippantly that Christ was sinless. We can't even make it a day without sinning, right? Especially when our thoughts and our hearts are judged before the Lord, but he never sinned. He never, ever sinned. He is the fulfillment of the unleavened bread. He's the bread of life. If you find yourself empty tonight, he's what you're looking for. The substance is of Christ. We go through these feasts and we just rejoice in him. The first fruits of the resurrection, the power that raised Christ from the dead, lives inside of us. Hear that trumpet of God. Hear God calling you into his presence. Enjoy the fact that, man, Jesus, you came so that I could dwell with you and you could dwell with me. The substance is Christ and press into him. Also, I think an application of these feasts is to know, okay, four have been fulfilled. There's three more to come. The third, the Feast of Trumpets, could be fulfilled at any moment. Am I ready? Application, be awake. Be awake spiritually. Romans 13 says, and do this knowing the time. So understanding the time understanding that time's short, and now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Agreed? It's nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This is a real spiritual state, slumber. You're saved, I'm saved, we're going to heaven, but we have no idea what time it is. Isn't that what happens when we sleep too long? The alarm clock's going off, the alarm clock's going off, snooze, 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 and then all of a sudden we miss something that's very important, like work. Work. We were supposed to be there 15 minutes ago and we've got to eat humble pie. Spiritually is the alarm going off. God saying pay attention, time's short. Pay attention, time's short. Pay attention, time's short. Oh, I'll just hit the spiritual snooze button again. Then we miss something that's very very important. I don't want to be asleep spiritually during these times. I have great hope going into this new year. That a great awakening is going to happen amongst the children of God. I might be a little sadistic, but I'm getting excited that our culture is not biblical and that it's countercultural to follow Jesus Christ, that there's opposition in our culture to the things of Christ. Because, you know why? Because I think it's going to cause the church to wake up. Because all of a sudden, following Christ is going to cost us something, but I also think it's going to cause a lost and dying world to pay attention. To pay attention. They're going to start looking at the claims of Christ and the church more closely because it's standing out. And for so long, there was just this gray in our country where everybody was a Christian and everybody wanted to be a Christian. And when you scored a touchdown, you were a Christian and you were going to Disneyland and you were a Christian. And now all of a sudden, it's not the cool thing to say that you're a Christian, to live out the life of Christ and to stand on the truth of God's word. I could be wrong, But I sense that the Lord is desiring to move. He's wanting to work. He's wanting to wake us up as believers and say, this is the time to be in love with me. This is the time to take steps of faith. This is the time to serve the Lord. And by God's grace and by his goodness, wouldn't it be wonderful to be found faithful when Christ comes? Not perfect, but faithful. God I'm doing your business I'm doing your work I'm trying to press into the things that you have for me. So we're going to end in a different way tonight. We're actually going to go to our knees if you're physically able and you feel comfortable. If you don't that's okay too. The the real purpose is the heart. But I desire God's power. I need his power. I want to put this as frankly as I possibly can. I need more than information about the seven feasts. I love the, the information about the seven feasts. I love the truth of the seven feasts. But I need it to, to impact my heart. I need it to touch me here. And I need God to do a work in here. So we're going to go to our knees and we're going to pray. And then we're going to move into communion. So would you join me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we bow before you because you're good. There's very few people on this earth that we would ever take a knee to bow to, maybe in proposing to our spouse, but Lord, you're the one that we bow down and worship to. We, as a church family, wanna give you our hearts again tonight. And we don't simply want to know the information about your coming, but we want to live in expectation of your soon return. So would you resurrect that hope inside of us? May something happen tonight in our hearts and in our lives that you would confirm your word in our heart of your soon return. We pray through Romans 13. God protect us from being asleep spiritually. If we're asleep, would you wake us up If we're in the works of darkness, we want to cast those things off. We want to put on you, Jesus. We know we're saved. We know we're your children, but we want to choose to walk in you and make no provision for the flesh. So would you work in our hearts tonight? Would you purify us? We want to take a moment just to pray through the feast. Jesus, thank you that you are the Passover lamb. We would be lost, dead in our sin, damned to destruction if it wasn't for you. And we rejoice in you that you're the lamb of God who takes away our sin. That you didn't just cover our sin, but you removed our sin. Jesus, we're in awe of you tonight that you are the unleavened bread, that you're pure. You never thought an inappropriate thought. You were never covetous. You never used your anger for sin. Oh, you're holy and you're good and you're the bread of life who is buried for us that our sin would be buried with you so we could be risen in newness of life. Jesus, we thank you that you're the first fruits of the, the resurrection and that we too will rise, that we will have a glorified body, no more pain, no more suffering. We thank you for Pentecost and how you, Jesus, sent the Holy Spirit and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We surrender to you, Holy Spirit. We desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to walk in the spirit and Jesus, we thank you that Pentecost is fulfilled, that there are two loaves, Jew and Gentile, with leaven, God, that you've made the church. We love you. We thank you for that. The feast of trumpets, we look forward to hearing that trumpet sound when you're going to call us home as your bride we thank you for that promise. You tell us in your word to comfort one another with these words. May we be comforted knowing that all that are dead in Christ will rise, that we'll be together forever. We want to pray right now for those in our fellowship that are grieving the loss of loved ones, wives that are mourning their husbands, husbands that are mourning their wives, those that are mourning for the loss of their children. Would you comfort them in a a powerful way? Would the teaching of the rapture of the church be a comfort to their heart? The day of atonement, Jesus, we look forward to when you're going to put your feet down on the Mount of Olives and the nation of Israel is going to behold you, the Lamb of God. We pray for Etai. He's a a good man. He's a kind man, but he doesn't know you. He teaches about you, but he doesn't know you, Jesus. Would you open his eyes? And finally, We rejoice in the Feast of Tabernacles. We thank you that our future is secure, that we're gonna dwell with you forever, that the tabernacle of God is with men. We also enter into that now, that Jesus, you're with us more than any other year. May we know your intimate fellowship. God, we're broken before you, but we're in love with you. We ask one thing for our church. We ask that we would grow in the knowledge of you this year and that we would worship you more out of understanding who you are, that the worship would flow. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.